This is lesson three for us in our study of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Um, we're studying this, this particular section of Genesis, which is termed primeval history. And um, just to kind of clarify this one more time, the book of Genesis is essentially divided into two major sections. Uh, one section is known as patriarchal history, which is the st- section that we're not undertaking, uh, at least not at this point. Um, that spans Genesis chapters 12 through chapter 50. And uh, from uh, the MacArthur Study Bible, this is how uh, Dr. MacArthur describes this section of patriarchal history. This is God's people came to understand not only their ancestry and family history, but also the origins of their institutions, customs, languages, and different cultures, especially basic human experiences such as sin and death. That's the larger, by, by volume of, of chapter and word, uh, section of Genesis. We are focusing on the first 11 chapters called Primeval History. Here's a description of that section. It reveals the origins of the universe, i.e. the beginnings of time and space and many of the firsts in human experience, such as marriage, family, the fall, sin, redemption, judgment, and nations. So our overarching study, we've entitled this, Where It All Begins. Um, the, title, Genesis, the title of the book, Genesis, obviously is uh, best translated, as we talked about in our first lesson, Origins. Um, and really, as we, ta- as we look at this first section of the book of Genesis, or the book of origins, or the book of beginnings, we are really focusing on where it all begins, or really the beginning of the beginning. Um, and nothing is more clear than that when you open up Genesis chapter 1 and you read the very first verse, and you see how that begins, which we're going to uh, get to today and talk about a little bit today. So where it all begins is, is our, the title of our overall study. Um, so and Dr. Victor Hamilton in his commentary states it this way about the, the book's nature. It says, Genesis is obviously a book concerned with origins the origins of Earth's creation, of humankind, of institutions by which civilization is perpetuated, of one special family chosen by God as his own and designated as the medium of world blessing. So, Genesis is a book about origins or beginnings, where it all begins, and over the last couple of weeks, we have been kind of doing some, I think, important work in establishing some context for us. Um, And the first thing we did is we established what I what I would call our human context, not context in terms of, you know, author, date, setting of the book, that kind of thing, but really a, a broader and more comprehensive context for us as, as sons and daughters of Adam, as those who are post-Genesis 3, post-fall. And, and we, we really, um, first of all, talked about in this idea of human context, we had two basic components to this. The first one we talked about is that the fact that we are innately self-absorbed and self-centered, and this uh, really, uh, one, of the, one of the clearest manifestations of this is our general lack of interest or attention to or time for history. Um, in other words, we're very current in our outlook. We're very interested in what's happening to us right now, what's going to benefit us right now, what's going to remove impediments to our happiness and what's going to clear the way for our, our satisfaction and fulfillment. We are very current in our, in our general outlook, which really is a characteristic of us in our fallen nature of what I would consider self-centeredness, self, self-absorption. We're just naturally that way. But it leads us to have a um, sort of just a, 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 low, a low attention span to things historical 
in general. We're very current in our outlook. Now, here's what I really didn't, I don't think, put a fine point on um, as, as this would play out in the context of a Christian community or a Christian context, this, this self-centeredness and how it might manifest itself. Um, in the professing Christian community, this, this kind of innate nature in us plays itself out oftentimes in, in, a, in a way that, that causes people or compels people, professing Christian people, to uh, relegate things like Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapters 1 through 6, Genesis chapters 1 through 11, whatever it might be, to relegate that, particularly the creation account, maybe the, 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 the story of the fall, possibly the story of the, the universal flood, to relegate those sections of Scripture to what they would call non-essential doctrines. Those are non-essential to the Christian faith. So in other words, I, I'm more concerned as a Christian with uh, what's going to help me right now worship Jesus more sincerely or serve my fellow man, my neighbor, love my neighbor more sacrificially. What's going to help me right now be a better Christian? And really, if you turn that inside out a little bit, it's really a still, a, I think, a, a, a shadow of that self-centeredness and self-absorption that says, you know what? God's purpose and the primary objective of God's word as it's delivered to me is for me, primarily, rather than God's word as he reveals himself through it is to be just that, a revelation of God himself, to set our minds right as to who God is, to set our minds right as to who we are in light of who he is, to set our minds right in in terms of our purpose in light of who he is. It's a completely different perspective. The self-centered perspective manifests itself even in the context of the Christian community. And even when you, when you get to, to teaching on, for example, creation or origins, how it all began, where did we come from, and, and what were the mechanisms that, that brought all this about, it can manifest itself in this way of just relegating, for example, incidental sort of unimportant details about whether God created the universe in six literal 24-hour days or whether he utilized evolution and the evolutionary processes and he superintended it over eons of time. Those things are really inconsequential and irrelevant to my daily Christian walk. And I would argue emphatically, no, they're not. Now, I'm not just saying that because I'm teaching a class on it and it would be kind of silly for me to say, yeah, it's kind of true, so next week, you know, why bother? Um, I'm not just saying that because I'm teaching on it. I'm saying it, and I think we'll see this, and I think you would probably all agree, we'll see this so clearly as we get into this study. And when you really look at the totality of Scripture and you see constant references back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, the creation narrative, um, these formative truths about who God is and who man is and all these things. So, so we'll see this clearly as it, as it, um, as it flows out in the totality of, of God's revelation through his word. So that was really the first component, that we are innately self-centered. The second component that we looked at in this human context that we're talking about was that we are prone, as sons and daughters of Adam, we are prone to love our sin. Uh, we love it so much that we're willing, even willing to um, suppress the truth about who God is and, and how he's made himself clear to us through the creation, as we read about in Genesis chapter 1, excuse me, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, that man loves his sin so much 
that in the face of what is crystal clear, what is just so patently obvious in the grandeur and splendor and majesty of God's created order uh, and, and the things that are just observable in creation, that God made himself known through his creation, uh, that man will take that clear revelation through creation, that natural revelation, and he'll suppress that truth. He'll press it down in unrighteousness, in sin. Man loves sin. We love our sin so much so that we're willing to, to do that. And we're willing to make this massive exchange. And it's not just, uh, it's not just a, an exchange in terms, of, in terms of size or scope. It's massive in the sense that it's, just this, it's the ultimate tragic exchange that man makes. And that is that we, we exchange or we trade the glory of the immortal God for images resemb- resembling beasts and creeping things. In other words, we exchange a worldview that is God-centered, creator-centered, for a worldview that is creation and creature-centered, this massive exchange. That's really our, our human context. We are self-centered. We, we are very current. We want to know what's going to help us now, um, serve our purposes now. We might cast it in spiritual terms or Christian-type language, but really it's this fundamental self-centeredness. And then, more tragically, a man in general is inclined to suppress what is true about God and what is truly clearly known about God in his sin and make this tragic exchange, become creature-oriented and, uh, instead of God-oriented. The second um, major point in this, in this context for us that we made last week is that we stated that it's important to recognize that everyone who comes to a study of Genesis or to the scriptures in general, but to the study of Genesis in particular, everyone who comes to this kind of study or to this kind of reading, we all, believing, unbelieving, skeptic, faithful, it doesn't matter, we all bring to this study presuppositions, philosophical presuppositions. Now, I want to give you a definition of that because I don't know if I was super clear on that last week, but a definition of a philosophical presupposition is this. It's a set of ideas or a set of beliefs that we hold either consciously or unconsciously. So it could be something that you've really thought through and determined. This is how things are, and so I'm going to interpret reality or whatever I face in my life through the lens of what I've determined to be true and right, and clear, and objective. It's either consciously or unconsciously. We don't, we don't even know that we have a presupposition. In other words, you might come into a relationship, and you might have a preconceived notion that this person is a mean person. You've never met them. You've never talked to them. You don't know them. But you have either heard something, or maybe you've just looked at them from a distance, and you caught them, and you didn't know that they just took a drink of coffee, and it burnt their tongue. All you saw was the after effect, and you saw a mean scowl, and so you've determined that they're a mean person. And so that's a presupposition that you bring to that relationship. So you, next time you meet them, you might approach them with a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of you know hands-off kind of thing, because your presupposition about that encounter, your preconceived idea is one of their mean because I saw them and they look mean. Okay, that's a very simple, somewhat silly way to illustrate what a presupposition is. These predetermined ideas and beliefs, this is the important part of that, about this. They thoroughly guide and inform how people interpret things like Genesis, things like the creation account in Genesis in particular that we're going to start with. 
These presuppositions are informers and guides to the interpretation, the understanding interpretation of Genesis. And everyone brings those presuppositions to the table. Okay? Now, we, we talked last week about some common presuppositions that you might find in the unbelieving community, or maybe a, a better way to put it, and this is probably not really the best way to put it, but in the naturalistic scientific community. In other words, you know, not, not, the, not the Shreyas and Mark scientific community, you know, faithful believers, but the, those that, who would embrace, who are in the scientific community or consider themselves scientists or scientifically oriented, who are, would embrace naturalism. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a second again. We'll reiterate that definition. But those, those people bring to a study of Genesis some presuppositions, some predetermined ideas and beliefs. And, and, and here are some of them. The first one we looked at was that man is the final arbiter of truth. That's an initial presupposition that, that oftentimes the, the secular scientific community would bring to a study of, for example, origins or the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That man is the final arbiter. Man is the one that determines whether something is true or not true. So you can imagine, if that's my presupposition, then I come to Genesis chapter 1 and I read in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I'm like, you got to prove that to me. You got to show me. I mean, come on. I mean, first of all, you've got to prove to me that God exists. In other words, if I can't see it or I can't observe it or I can't put it into a test tube and test it with a chemical reaction, I mean, it's that kind of thinking that, that they bring to the study of Genesis. I have to be shown and proved to the truth or veracity of this statement because I am the final arbiter of what is true. I am. I get to determine that. That's a massive presupposition. The second one that we talked about was that science is... Um, Purely and is a pure and objective. Science is purely objective, I should say, and therefore it's ultimately authoritative. This is a huge presupposition in the uh, secular scientific community. There's this idea that scientists or the scientific method or process of testing hypotheses of using um, things that can be observed or drawn from the natural order, from the natural universe, that those things uh, in my observation and testing and analysis and conclusions that I draw from them, those things are purely objective. And my analysis of them are purely objective. And my testing methodologies of them are purely objective. In other words, I'm coming as a scientist from a position of pristine clarity and objectivity. You religious folk, on the other hand, you're coming with all kinds of you know, <clears throat> diluted thoughts about faith and about supernatural occurrences and about all this nonsense, I, it, just totally different. So it stands to reason that you're going to come to the conclusions that you come to, because you're coming to this in a very, un, with a, lacking a tremendous amount of objectivity, unlike the scientists. We come with a tremendous amount of objectivity. It's pristine, clear, pure objectivity. That is a presupposition. Now, when we talk about science, it's very important, and I, we, I mentioned this last week, it's very important that we understand that science as a term or as a field of, of study or research 
or exploration. Science in and of itself is a benign term. It is, it is not inherently loaded with you know, moral judgment of some kind. In other words, we as professing Christians and those who would embrace God as the creator, we, we don't need to look at science as this big, ugly, evil, wicked sphere of, of belief and practice out there. There are many, many, many people, some of them in this room, who are, would consider themselves scientists, okay, who are faithful, God-fearing believers in Scripture, saved by grace. So science is not the problem. It's the, 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 the type of science, if you will, the, the strain of science. And it's this strain that really is more of an ideology or a religion. It's really a, a religious form under a, under a sort of a shroud or a, a veil of science and scientific exploration. And it has two sort of characteristics to it, two uh, components to it. One is naturalism. We talked about this last week. Naturalism. Naturalism basically says that everything in the physical universe can and indeed must be explained by time, chance, and the laws of nature working on matter. In other words, everything that I'm going to ascertain and understand and draw conclusions about the origin of things, the way things work in the universe, all of that information and all those conclusions have to be drawn from what already is, from, from actual, you know, taking geological samples from strata or and testing them or using radiocarbon dating to date, you know, the age of some fossil or whatever. I mean, it's all got to be taken from the known universe for me to, to really understand it. It's naturalism. In other words, you cannot in, introduce into the equation anything supernatural. You just can't. When you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, do you see a problem right out of the gate? In the beginning, God created. So we start from a place that is completely contrary to this idea of naturalism. Well, the naturalist would look at that and say, you can't do that. I mean, it's literally what they do. They say, you can't do that. That's not allowed. It's almost like some of the arguments and some of the reading that I've done on this, it's that simplistic and almost that absurd. You, you can't do that. That's not allowed. If you do that, I'm going to take my scientific marbles and I'm going to go home. That's kind of the, 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 the nature of the argumentation. It's just that sort of categorical. So it's naturalism is one component of this, this area of science that's so authoritative. And then the other component is this idea of uniformitarianism. So you've got naturalism. Everything has to be pulled from the universe and the known universe to, to be studied and observed and make conclusions about. And then uniformitarianism is this, that natural physical processes have always acted in the same manner and rate and intensity as we see operating today. Okay? So that means that if I observe something uh, in the universe, something uh, acting in a certain way, and I, so maybe I'm talking about, you know, um, I'm using light year calculations to determine, you know, the age of something or, or you know, whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm using sort of these, these calculations that are just, they function this way now. Then I am extrapolating from those calculations or those assumptions this idea that, that what I'm observing now and the way the, the natural laws of the universe are working now, it's always been that way. There's never been any, any interruption of that. There's never been any change of that. There's never been any, any difference in that. And so all of my conclusions, all of my calculations are going to be based upon that assumption. Well, we have a problem there. Again, when you look at Scripture, what you see over and over and over again 
is God stepping into the natural order and doing supernatural things over and over again. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's God's activity. And we're going to talk about this when we look at Genesis chapter 1 in just a little bit. God does not step into, or he's not bound to step into the created order and do something, but make sure, because the scientific community says he has to, he has to follow the, the laws of nature, and he has to make sure that whatever he does, he does it in the same way so that everything works the same way it always has worked because that's the precept. I mean, it's just, that's just folly to even talk about it. It's like I'm sounding silly even saying it. But that is a major assumption of the scientific community. It's naturalism and uniformitarianism that are characteristic of this, this scientific assumption that it's objective and authoritative and so can't be argued with. So another presupposition, this is the last one we identified, is that religion and its corresponding sacred texts and articles of faith are at best a soothing balm to the pain and travail of life, but at worst, religion is a source of intellectual delusion and social control. So some might view, in the scientific community, some might view religion as okay insofar as it goes, in other words, you got your Jesus, or you got your Bible, or you got your Muhammad, or you got your, your Hindu idols, or you got whatever it might be. You got Confucius, you got your religion, and if that helps you kind of deal with the suffering and pain of life, or if that gives you sort of a motivational charge to get through your day, fine. You, you can have that. No big deal. However, the threat, and I, I don't use the term threat casually here, the threat that people in the scientific, the sort of the secular scientific community feel and respond to is this idea that religion, if it's pushed too far, becomes a means of social control, and we can't have that. In other words, these religious fanatics called Christians, all they want to do is make me live my life in a certain way. These Christian people take their Bibles and they want to beat it over my head with this moral code and they want to tell me that I can or I cannot do the things that I want to do. Okay? That's when it becomes a massive problem. And that's, when, that's where a battle line is going to be drawn and you're entering into war at that point. Now, to illustrate this, this, the, these presuppositions in general, but even this last one in particular, a couple of, couple of factoids here. Now, listen to this. In November, uh, in the November-December 2003 edition of the American Biology Teacher... And this is a this is a trade publication for for biology teachers, in, in, in the uh, at the school level, like high school level. Okay, in this edition, the 2003 November December 2003 edition of the American Biology Teacher, scientist Dr. Marshall Berman wrote an editorial piece in which he goes after the proponents of intelligent design. Intelligent design is a whole you know area of of scientific study where you got scientists who are kind of looking at things in the universe, and in particular where this has become majorly manifest is, is the, the, the smaller we're able to get in our observations of things, like at the molecular level, and you start seeing design in, in such a way that it just completely shatters any kind of uh, notions of upward evolutionary process or that kind of thing. You've got people in the scientific community who are just looking at it and going, you know, I'm not saying there's a God. I'm not saying there's a personal God. I'm not saying that it's the God of the Bible. I'm not saying that Jesus was his son. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that as a scientist, 
I'm looking at the evidence and I'm saying there is intelligent design here. That's sort of the intelligent design scientific community. But this gentleman, Dr. Marshall Berman, wrote an editorial piece in which he goes after those proponents of the intelligent design community who have been poking a giant holes in evolutionary theory over the last several years. And listen to some of the rhetoric of his arguments. Now, here's what I want you to hear. I want you to hear the tone and tenor of what he's saying as an argument or, or a caution against these intelligent design fanatics. He warns, quote, consciously or unconsciously, they, these proponents of intelligent design, are jeopardizing the nature of science itself, our education system, and even our form of government. He further warns that those who reject evolution and argue that the universe shows unmistakable signs of having been designed by intelligence, quote, do not understand that the cause many of them promote would, if successful, terminate many of the freedoms that they and we currently enjoy. So here's a scientist who's saying, you people that are pushing this intelligent design mantra, you are putting our form of government at risk, and you are jeopardizing the very freedoms that we enjoy at risk. So it's not, it's not about the validity or invalidity of one person's argument or the, the nature of their evidence for their argument. It's, it's a cause. It's a fear. It's a reaction to a fear that, that this is going to lead to the religious fanatics taking over is really what this boils down to. He says that the, this is a quote, he says, the ID proponents, they do not accept the essence of science, the foundation that has made it so successful as a special way of learning about the world. Science as the search for natural causes for natural phenomenon. That's naturalism. Now listen to what he says. He says, creationists' evidence against evolution is no better than so-called evidence that the earth is flat Demons cause disease, or the stork brings babies. So that's the rhetoric this, this guy's writing. And he's writing in a periodical or a, a journal that goes out to teachers in the schools, biology teachers. In 2007, another anecdotal piece of evidence here about the nature of these presuppositions that we're talking about. In 2007, the Council of Europe, the European continent's central human rights body, declared by formal resolution that creationism is a threat to human rights. This is, a, this is a formal body on the continent of Europe, the Council of Europe, which is the central human rights body on the European continent. In 2007, they, by a formal resolution, in other words, they had to have this big discussion and vote on this resolution, they have determined that creationism is a threat to human rights. Now listen to this excerpt from the resolution. For some people... The creation, as a matter of religious belief, gives a meaning to life. Nevertheless, the parliamentary assembly is worried about the possible ill effects of the spread of creationist ideas within our education systems and about the consequences for our democracies. If we are not careful, creationism could become a threat to human rights, which are a key concern of the Council of Europe. So the presuppositions that we're talking about here are, are, are real and substantial, and they're formative for where these people are coming from in their view of Genesis. That's why, that's why this is such a, 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 a clash of, of, of worldviews. 
It's, it's a major, major class of worldviews. Now, we articulated our presuppositions. Let's go through these really quickly. The first presupposition we're going to operate with is that there is a God and we're not him. Remember that one? There is a God and, and we're not him. And we've got to be okay with that. The second one is that this God has revealed himself clearly and powerfully through his creation, through his word, and through his son and our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a God, we're not him, but he's made himself known in some very powerful and clear ways. The third presupposition for us is that the Bible is true, reliable, clear, and authoritative. And last time I read from you our doctrinal position as a church, so you can go back and look at that online. It's a great statement about our belief about the Bible and its authoritativeness and its clarity, the inspiration of Scripture. And we'll probably come back to that at another time. The last one we didn't state under the category of our presupposition, but it is one of our presuppositions, and this is a very important one. Apart from the redeemed and renewed eyes of saving faith, man in his sin and corruption cannot and will not see the world God made and the God who made the world clearly. Therefore, he will not interpret what he sees accurately. This is an issue of someone being dead versus someone being alive. This is an issue of someone who has been given a new mind, who's been made a new creation in Christ Jesus, versus someone who is dead in their sins and trespasses. And this is really what it boils down to as a a presupposition for us. So our expectation of what we do to engage in discussion and dialogue about the veracity of Scripture or the truthfulness of the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 with someone who is an unbeliever, if we think, if we make the mistake of thinking that if we just mount up enough evidence and we read enough books and we look at it and we read enough articles, if we just do all of these things, then we can come to this unbeliever who doesn't believe that there is a God and certainly doesn't believe that God created everything, and we can go to Genesis chapter 1 and use all of our learned you know, reasoning and, and evidentiary facts that we put, in, put together, and we can convince them and compel them to ultimately believe the argument for a creator God. Never going to happen. The unbeliever who doesn't believe in God and who doesn't believe that God created the world and all that we know needs the gospel. That's what they need. They will never see it and never acknowledge it in all all its truth and glory as it's revealed in Scripture apart from that. And we need to understand that as a presupposition of ours. Okay. Authorship. Who wrote Genesis? Wait. That was kind of muddled. Who? What? Moses? Moses? Anyone say Paul? Please don't say Paul, right? Um. Moses, okay. That's right. So um, you do, do you, I don't know if you're aware, but over the last 200 years, uh, there's been a very systematic sort of undermining of Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. Um, and really, this, this undermining of, of Mosaic authorship, it's much broader in scope than that. It's really an undermining of the... Um, uh, the, the um, clarity and the, um, I don't know, the uniformity, if you will, the, 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 the I don't know, the clarity of the Pentateuch as it's, as it's currently written, okay? And it's an effort to undermine the authority of Scripture, really. I mean, it's, it's what the ultimate um, outcome is. Now, listen to this uh, quote from Dr. Al Mohler. There's been four challenges 
over the last 200 years, four primary challenges to uh, just a very traditional, straightforward reading and understanding of, of Genesis in particular, or the first five books of the Old Testament in general, um, and, and really a challenge to not just a, a straightforward reading, but a, an understanding of and a belief in uh, Moses as the author. Um, he says, over the last 200 years, four great challenges to the traditional reading of Genesis have emerged. The first challenge was the geological record, which revealed to post-Enlightenment explorers, scientists, and Christians a story about fossils and strata around the globe that gave them pause when attempting to understand this new data in light of the traditional biblical account of early history. So you had people discovering new things and, and as, they, as geological exploration uh, was undertaken more and more and more, and they started not seeing things as clearly from Scripture, not understanding how to interpret these findings in light of Scripture. And so it started creating doubt in people's minds. Secondly, is the emergence of Darwin's theory of origins by means of natural selection, which has since become the bedrock for evolutionary theory across the sciences, presented a a direct challenge to the traditional interpretation of Genesis, obviously. Uh, The third great challenge came with the discovery of ancient Near Eastern parallels to the Genesis account, such as the Enuma Elish, which I couldn't remember. I I think I remembered Elish, but I couldn't remember Enuma last week. Um, The Enuma Elish and the Epic of Gilgamesh are two examples of these uh, Near Eastern parallels. And as these have been discovered, scholars began to study these documents, and some began to see Genesis as just one more ancient Near Eastern creation story. So the idea here is that we discover these ancient Near Eastern um, epics, if you will, that have in them elements of some kind of creation narrative. And so the assumption that, that emerges is that all that's happening in the Genesis account is just pulling from these traditions and ideas about origins that are found in other uh, Near Eastern uh, Mesopotamian um, epic literature at that time. So it's just basically uh, levels out Genesis and doesn't set it up on any kind of inspired plane, but just says it's just more of that same kind of strain of Near Eastern ancient creation narrative literature. Okay? Now, finally, here's the last one. Higher criticism played a major role in challenging the authority and accuracy and ultimately the authority of Genesis' account of origins and Earth's history, predominantly seen through the use of the documentary hypothesis starting to sound like a seminary class. Theological criticism at this level sought to cast doubts on the authorship of the Old Testament books. So this documentary hypothesis basically is this view that believes that the Pentateuch represents this combining of, of, of um, four different sources into um, this final ultimate work over a long period of time. Okay, this is a very sort of simplistic way. It started off you know, kind of with one scholar coming up with one idea or theory about it, and then scholars from that point on built onto it and built onto it and built onto it. So it's taken on you know, a wide variety of, of shapes in terms of you know, what the different sources were, these unknown and undiscovered sources, but sources nonetheless, that, that were used to just compile this thing called the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Old Testament. In other words, it wasn't written by Moses. Um, it, was, it was brought together or pulled together or compiled from these major sources. And this really, the interesting thing about this, and, and then we'll press on into, the, into the, the first verse. The interesting thing about this, this whole area of criticism is that it really is, is the same era, the same time frame uh, that Darwin was you know, publishing Origin of the Species, 
Um, it's post-enlightenment times. So in other words, this idea of skepticism, of uh, criticism in this case called higher criticism, where you basically take a secular view to evaluating and analyzing Scripture. Again, man is the final arbiter of all things that are true. That, that period of time, is the same, it's the same period of time that these, these theories about where Genesis came from were emerging and building upon one another. And it was based upon reason rather than revelation. It's very speculative in nature, this, this form of, of trying to identify who wrote Genesis. And its origin, the origins of this criticism, this higher criticism, are also deeply intertwined with naturalism. When you, when you read about what they do and how they come to their conclusions, it almost looks like they're trying to apply the, the, law, the nat- natural laws to the study and analysis of scripture and biblical texts and comparing biblical texts to other texts of a similar time period and similar setting. Um, It's very naturalistic in its orientation. We're going to go with Moses, okay? We're going to go with Moses for a few reasons. Um, This is just from, again, from the MacArthur Study Bible. It's very succinct and clear. Uh, um, He says this, that, uh, the, the Old Testament, both the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, ascribe the composition, this composition to Moses, who is the fitting author in light of his educational background. And there are no compelling, re- no compelling reasons have been forthcoming to challenge Mosaic authorship. And furthermore, Genesis was written after the Exodus, uh, for 1445 B.C., but before Moses' death in 1405 B.C. So based upon the Old Testament ascribing Mosaic authorship and the New Testament ascribing Mosaic authorship. We're going to go with Mosaic authorship, but I want to read to you um, John chapter 5, verses 30 to 47. This is Jesus, and he's really in this dialogue speaking about his authority. And listen to what he says. John chapter 5, verse 30 to 47. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things to you so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom has sent the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For by it, 
For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe in my words? That's a pretty powerful testimony. We're going to go with Moses. The literary nature of Genesis is, um, it's, it's got a historical um, element to it. It's not intended to be a mere chronicle of events, but it's a, it's a biography of a nation. It's a special kind of history. Um, it talks about worldview. It's a kind of history that transcends just the historical plane of things, the reporting of facts. Um, it's actually a unique distillation of history. It's less interested in recording events for the sake of history than in using these events as vehicles for communicating the verities of biblical faith. In other words, it's a revelation of God through the context of history. Okay? So, Genesis 1.1. We've got a few minutes to make some observations about Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Not a very long verse, just a few words. What are some initial observations that we can make about, just basic observations about this text? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, God was in the beginning. So what's, what's another way to describe an attribute of God if he was just in the beginning? Eternal, Right? God, you, you, right, right out of the gate, you have the eternality of God. The, the God is eternity. I mean, there is, there's no beginning, no end. Listen to this Psalm of Moses in Psalm chapter 90, verse 2. This is a Psalm of Moses himself and his, his prayer. Verse 1 of Psalm chapter 90 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, Wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Right out of the gate, we are introduced to this eternal God. This, this idea of a being that always was, always is, always will be. Listen to, um, listen to Stephen Charnock. Stephen Charnock is this great... English Puritan scholar and minister from the 17th century, and uh, he, he basically, his, all of his sermons and writings were compiled into this massive tome called Discourse on the Existence, of, Existence and Attributes of God. And um, listen to what he says about, about the eternity of God. He's basically posing a, a question. He says, how is God eternal, or in what respects is he so? And he makes the following introductory comments about God's eternality. He says, eternity is a negative attribute and is a denying of him any bounds of place. In other words, he is eternal, meaning he has no beginning and he has no end. It's a negative kind of concept. In other words, we can only understand it in terms of negative contrast. It's a negative attribute and it is a denying of him any bounds of place. As immensity is the diffusion of his essence, so eternity is the duration of his essence. And when we say God is eternal, we exclude from him all possibility of beginning and ending, all flux and change. As the essence of God cannot be bounded by any place, so it is not to be limited by any time. 
As it is His immensity to be everywhere, so it is His eternity to be always. As His essence comprehends all beings and exceeds them, and His immensity surmounts all places, so His eternity comprehends all times, all durations, and infinitely excels them. Now, you guys, you cannot come to Genesis chapter 1 and be confronted with the eternal God and, and not have to sit for a minute and try to just think about what it means to be, in essence, eternal. That's why I read from someone like Stephen Charnock, because you go back to Puritan times, and these were people who thought deeply about who God is and about what his word has said about him. And I, I mean, this is the kind of thing you have to read kind of over and over again to really kind of get your... But that's, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about this attribute of the living God. Remember when I said earlier, when you come to Genesis chapter 1, you're not coming to this little scientific handy journal for, for cute little Christians who want to try to explain how everything came about. You are coming to God, the eternal God, revealing himself to man. And he shows up on the scene, and the first thing we see is that he is eternal. Now listen to what else Charnock says about him. And he answers his own questions about about what this eternity is like in this attribute of his. The first thing he says is God is without beginning. Okay. The second thing he says is that God is without end. Okay. That's pretty straightforward. I mean, eternal, no beginning, no end. Got it. This is the one that kind of drew me in, though. The third thing he says is that there is no succession in God. And listen to how he describes this. God is without succession or change. And then he quotes from Psalm 90. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In other words, the same. God doth not always remain in being, but he always remains the same in that being. The being of creatures is successive. The being of God is permanent and remains entire with all its perfections, unchanged in infinite duration. By his very essence and nature, God is God. In other words, we are confronted at the very outset here with a, with a, a, a creator who is altogether other than, the, than us. You cannot come to Genesis chapter 1 and start with a presupposition that says, I will determine who this God is, and whether or not he fits into my worldview. The language of the text itself just precludes that kind of assumption on the face of it. Let's go through a couple of other observations here. The second thing we see is the sovereignty of God over his creation. In other words, there is no justification for what he's doing in creating the heavens and the earth. There's no explanation of why I'm here. It's just, in the beginning, God, and then he goes to work. There's an element of sovereignty, of ultimate control and power over his creation. We also see the comprehensive extent of God's creative work. God created what? In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. What's left? Do you understand that? It's kind of a poetic device to say everything. We got it covered. Heavens, earth, the vastness of space, everything contained in matter, 
it, it's all covered. The heavens and the earth. This is a statement about the extent of God's creative work. And I love this. If you go to the New Testament and you read John chapter 1, first couple of verses, what do you see there? I, I love this description of, of Jesus' involvement in creation. Listen to what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I, I love that terminology. So in case you're wondering, is there any maverick molecule in the universe that God did not have sovereign control over or creative action on? The answer is no. And I love the way that John puts it, and he's describing the incarnate word. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now listen to this. This is a great uh, thing to close on here. We'll be done. The last observation I want to draw on this, and we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2 together next week, is that there is an inspired genius in such an economy of words here. It's it's amazing when you think about it. Um, Dr. Uh, Jeff Miller wrote an article called The Five Manifestations of Natural Phenomenon. Listen to what he says, and we'll close with this. For over a century, scientists have recognized that all natural phenomena in the universe can ultimately be divided into interactions between five basic fundamental manifestations. In 1882, staunch evolutionist Herbert Spencer, an English philosopher, biologist, and sociologist who was a prominent classical liberal political theorist of the Victorian era, recognized, quote, likenesses and unlikenesses among phenomena which are segregated into manifestations and then into space, time, matter, and motion and force. In, in his book, First Principles, under the chapter heading, Space, Time, Matter, Motion, and Force, Spencer wrote, These modes of cohesion under which manifestations are invariably presented and therefore invariably represented we call space and time, matter, and motion. Though space, time, matter, and motion are apparently all necessary data of intelligence, yet a psychological analysis shows us that these are either built up of or abstracted from experiences of force. So, concludes uh, uh, Dr. Miller, time, force, action, space, and matter are the five manifestations of all scientific phenomenon. He goes on, the truth fundamental to understanding science was articulated by an agnostic in the 19th century, and yet these fundamental principles were articulated in the very first verse of the Bible a millennia ago. In the beginning, time, God, force, created, action, the heavens, space, and the earth, matter. It is truly amazing that a renowned apostle of agnosticism would be the one to verbally articulate this discovery from science, a discovery which gives significant weight to the contention that one can know there is a God and that the Bible is his inspired word. And further, it is notably ironic that the very man from whom Charles Darwin took the phrase, quote, survival of the fittest, Spencer, he took it from Spencer, would be the man that unknowingly found evidence specifically supporting the inspiration of Genesis chapter 1, the very chapter of the Bible that relates the truth about man's origin. God's word is inspired and authoritative and trustworthy. Let's pray.